Welcome to this episode of Let's Chat. I'm your host, Chris Revel, coming from the Cat Cave in Providence, Rhode Island. Great episode today. We have uh, Rose Cora Perry. She is... Rose is fucking awesome. She plays in a band called Rose Cora Perry and the Truth Untold. She used to play in a band called Antihero. She is so fucking nice, and for a lot of reasons, which I think you'll understand when you listen to the episode, she just has a lot of personality, and she's just so much fun to talk with, but I had to fucking cancel this interview like twice before we could do it and reschedule it, and Rose was really, really nice. Like, one of them was like minutes before, it's like, I'm so sorry, something came up, and she's like, don't worry, we'll just do it next week. Um, She couldn't be nicer, and then getting to talk to her. I really feel like we just connected. Like, she is so cool, uh, fantastic musician. She has a good philosophy on the world and wants to use her art to help the world. She's got an entrepreneur. I love talking to people about who are on major labels and their experiences. I've yet to talk to anyone who's had a positive experience. She doesn't hold anything back. Uh, you're gonna, I, I really appreciate her, like, ethic of her work ethic and how to tour smarter, not how to tour really smart and, uh, go go see her. She go see her in concert if you can. Follow her online website rosecoraperry.com. So that's rosecora c o r a perry.com. Of course, everything will be listed in our description and on our website. Find her on Facebook. Find her on Twitter. Find her on YouTube. All those sites and interact with her. And she's not kidding. If you tweet at her, I would. I'm gonna say there's like a ninety percent chance she'll interact back with you because she talked to me and then. She's got a ton of followers, and she came on this show. Uh, she's so nice. I, I really just had a wonderful time. I think if you're a fan of music, uh, the music industry kind of stuff, and and just good people who are great storytellers, who also happen to be straight-edge vegan, then this is for you. This show is a part of the Core Temp Arts Network. You can find us on coretemparts.com. Uh, we have a lot of great stuff. If you want to add us, uh, join us on our Facebook page, Core Temp Arts. We'd love to have you. We have a lot of really good people, great shows, and I, I've been getting to connect with a lot of really nice people through the Core Temp Arts, so it's been wonderful. I just want to do a plug for our last week's guest, Mike Maven of the Shelter Arcade Bar. I had the honor of meeting Mike twice now in person, and I went to Shelter Arcade this weekend, and I it was a dream come true. It's a bar uh, with tons of arcade games, tons of pinball machines, great craft beer. They just had a soft opening. So if you're from Providence or in the Providence area and you're like, wow, I really like the show and we should go grab a drink, hit me up on Twitter or Facebook. We can go to Shelter Bar, Shelter Arcade Bar and grab a drink and play some pinball and play some fucking arcade games. I played a Ninja Turtles uh, arcade game that I used to play as a child and Virtual Fighter 2. Blew my mind. So shout out to Mike. He did a great job. That bar is amazing. It's connected to FET. So uh, when I go there to see uh, Beach Lang... Andrew McMahon in the next couple months I'll definitely be there anyway just Rose big shout out for coming on also she's Canadian I think you're going to love her accent as much as I did I got nothing but great things to say about this episode so why don't I stop talking and you start listening Let's Chat with Revel and Friends is part of Court and Parts a podcast network featuring pop culture TV and movie podcasts check out our other shows That Pop This Live Talking Shondaland We Got Five and TV Ate My Brain at courtandparts.com it's funny because I was just listening to your music as you called. It's like, that's a little head trip. <laughs> <laughs> what were you listening to? Uh, Rockstar. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... I actually, I swear to God, I've heard that song before. Really? I don't know. I don't Did you Do you tour the States or have you toured the States ever? I have toured the States quite extensively. I've actually, believe it or not, even though I am a homegrown Canadian gal and I do love my own country, uh, I've had a lot of success over in the States, arguably more success over in the States because I kind of meld a lot of genres together, which 
Canadians being that we are conservative, it is true, they kind of have difficulty knowing what to do with me. They're like, well, she's not quite rock. She's not quite folk. She's got elements of the singer-songwriter thing, but then, you know, she plays with palm muting and chugging. So what is she actually doing, and how do we book her on a bill? Whereas if I play a place like New York, they're like, this is awesome. They don't even care. Yeah. So and the music it's, industry, it's an interesting yeah. mentality. And, and from my understanding is like I'm um I grew up in like the punk DIY scene in Connecticut when I was so still near and dear to my heart but like the all my friends are bands I love from Canada like it's like aren't the industries like split like Canadian they are. Band, it, I don't know what it is but for some reason it's like two different like I don't no idea but like bands from Can- I would be like bands from Canada I remember hearing about that thing like the Canadian government would give artists like a grant to go on tour or <laughs> I was like that's so cool. Um, yeah, about the grant programs we have. In theory, it sounds really, really great, and it sounds like we're very supportive of our own, but I can tell you from personal experience without, you know, naming names or anything, that it's a very, very corrupt system, and in my experience, it's kind of illegitimate who actually gets awarded such things. It's not like Drake and, like, the big guys. Like, come on. It's people who don't really need it, basically. Uh Uh-huh, yep, yep. Yeah, so... Um, but yeah, the, the Canadian and the American uh, music industries, I mean, obviously they, they work together because we're so close to you, right? Like, I mean, yeah. places like Michigan, because I'm in southwestern Ontario, it's only a couple hours away, so I could easily go over. And, and same with like Buffalo, New York, like it's, it's right there. Uh, and we do have a union that works to uh, allow Canadian artists to be able to tour to the States legitimately, which you should do so that, you know, you're not breaking any laws, of course. But it's a very, very different world over there. And I think it's because, first off, you guys have a more supportive scene in general. There's more venues to play at. There's more open-mindedness in terms of different genres that can be accepted. And I think that there's just, generally speaking, a bigger and better industry over there. Whereas, like, our major cities, because we have such a vast landscape, they're really, really few and far between, right? You could drive 16 hours between gigs. So, like, touring, like, I, I know it's funny hearing, like, bands who've toured the world and being, like, from Canada, there's a band I like called Silverstein and hear them talk and about, like, they've played Vancouver, like, four times, and they've been a band for 15 years, and they've been to Australia six times. Yeah. It's like, just to get to Vancouver is a fuck ton of money, and then it's, like, it's not enough to go that far for that little... Yeah, it's actually more expensive oftentimes for us to fly domestically than it is for us to go to the States. It would cost me more to fly over to B.C., so the west end of Canada, than it would to um, for me to go to Hawaii. Holy shit! Hawaii's way farther. No lies. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, like, that in itself, like, uh, uh, you know, one of the biggest expenses for a band goes without saying is, is travel costs if you're, you're touring all over the place. And so... I've kind of done my touring for as long as I can remember in a different sort of way. Uh, I don't really go away for months at a time on, you know, jaunts where you may or may not have good gigs because, like, let's be honest, you can have all these gigs booked and they sound really great, but oftentimes it's usually one or two out of ten that are worth your while. Like, it's really hit or miss, you know, that's just being blatant about the situation. So, What I usually do instead is I go for weekend holidays, and so I try to make the most of that weekend. So let's say I have um, New York booked for one weekend. I will play two or three shows in one go, and I will drive, you know, the, the eight or the nine hours to get there. I'll drive through the night, crash during the day, play gig one, play gig two the next day, play gig three, and then come home. Wow. You're kind of almost like a comedian. Like That's a (laughs) comedian store. Like, but it's a smarter way to do it because oh, it's yeah. less expensive, and that way, like, what I do, too, is I try to book all of my shows specifically around kind of festivals or bigger mm-hmm. events, so yeah. my appearances might not be as frequent, but they're more, you know, there's a higher possibility that you're playing to a larger audience, and so more than, more than uh, more frequently than not, it's more worth your time, and I think it's a, it's a smarter way to go about it just because, you know, obviously bands... Bands on the independent DIY scene, such as myself, we're not made of money. We're, we're self-funding this. And so I think it is important to look at logistics and, and try to come up with a strategy. And that's what's worked for me. So you tour smarter, not not more frequently. I mean, the States, too, is pretty huge. Like, if you can't get a date from New York to L.A., yeah, it, it's not it's not worth your time. 
No, it's absolutely if, if you, not. If you can't fill it, I mean, you can, but you're probably not going to make any money. Well, exactly. <laughs> and so if you're going to be going such a far distance, like, you know, I wouldn't just do it for one date unless that one date was, you know, playing to like 500,000 people. Well, that's yeah. not something I'm going to probably turn down. But Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, honestly, I... Uh, when I was in my old bands, the mentality oftentimes was, you know, let's just play as much as we can. And I learned pretty quickly that I don't think that's the smartest way to go about it because you can play frequently and accept every show that comes your way. But a lot of those shows are just exhausting and you're fighting with promoters and it's a letdown. And that's really what affects band morale on a negative level. So I would rather just try and be, you know, smarter with the gigs that I do play and hope for the best and, and go into them at least with a, a better opportunity to play to a decent sized crowd and be able to sell my merchandise and that kind of thing and, and promote, you know, my mission and what I'm all about. And then you'll have longevity. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, the, the worst thing that you want to happen is be on the road with your bandmates that are like your family. You love these people. You spend tons, tons of time with them. You've got that creative bond and you don't want to start tearing each other apart because you're all freaking exhausted. And you know, your morale's down because the last 10 gigs that you've played, you've played to three people, the people you brought with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you played your fair share of those. Absolutely, I have. Every yeah. band has. And so that's what I'm saying. You know, I learn from past mistakes and past bands that accepting every gig is not a good way to go about it. At least that is my personal humble opinion. People can disagree with me all they want, but that's just not, you know, what I'm all about. Uh, so sorry for the getting. Uh, you're from Canada, I take it? I am from Canada, yes, oh. London, Ontario, and for people who are not familiar with London, Ontario, no, I'm not from the UK, <laughs> I, I'm not that exciting, I'm two hours west, basically, of Toronto, two hours east of Detroit, so right smack dab in the yeah, middle. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. and then, so you're by, you've been playing music uh, forever, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> basically, and you were like a CEO of your own company at like 15? Yeah, uh, um, so I actually started performing when I was four, and I wrote my first song when I was seven, mm. and I had full intention of becoming a Broadway superstar. <laughs> so I underwent this crazy classical training for about 14 years, and then one day I was at a talent show singing Think of Me from Phantom of the Opera, and this chick comes up to me, and she's like, we should form a rock band. And I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> and that's kind of how it all started. I mean, it's not like that exciting with story, but that's honestly the origins of how I got involved in rock and roll. And my first band was basically four of us in high school. We came together. We formed a band. We didn't really know what we were doing. Uh, we kind of learned the instruments for the purpose of putting the band together. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We had some some label interest, actually. And so I thought at the time, you know, trying to get my feet wet, learning about what the music industry was all about, I understood that the key to success always came down to marketing. And so the reason I founded my own company is because I thought that it would look good and it would look more professional to have our first album come out on a record label as opposed to saying that we distributed, distributed it ourselves, even though the record label was my own. It just, it's a matter of branding, I guess. And I could recognize that that was really, really important from an early juncture in my career. And you thought of this at 15. Well, okay, in all fairness, I come from a family where both my parents are entrepreneurs. Okay, okay. So I've been around marketing and branding, like, you yeah. know, since I was a little girl, so I, I guess it's kind of in my blood. Well, I mean, your first statement about touring, about, like, how to do it smarter to that, I was like, all right, at 15, if you're figuring out marketing, you clearly know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, well, I, I, I know what has worked for me, and I know what has not worked for me. So, like I said, I mean, every band is going to have their own journey, and they're going to find their own way and what makes them happy. And if you want to go around and play all those shady bars and, you know, play to nobody, hey, be my guest. It's great experience to practice your craft, at least. But, you know, as I said, based on the experiences that I've had, because I've been doing this for quite some time, I, I you know, these are kind of strategies that I, I implemented for my own career that have seemed to work reasonably well. So were your mom and dad, they must have been supportive at 15 when you were like being a chip off the old block, but in the arts? Yes and no. 
<laughs> yeah. It was kind of contentious because, I mean, when I started getting into the rock and roll thing, they're like, oh, but you're classically trained. You're going to ruin your beautiful voice. So that was obviously, you know, the downside of going into rock and roll. There was concerns that I wouldn't really demonstrate my full vocal capability and what I was able to do, which I would say for a huge part of my career has actually come, you know, has actually been the truth. So I'll give my mom that. She was right. I just, I had... (laughs) I had a lot of soul searching in order to find myself as a vocalist and as a rock singer that has a classical background. It's hard to kind of merge those two styles together. And so it definitely took a while. Um, from my dad's perspective, and I guess my mom's too, yes, they did like the fact that, you know, I was kind of picking up the uh, the old boots of the family business and making one of my own. So I, I have a very, very awesome, you know, family and and amazingly supportive friends and if it weren't for them there's there's definitely been hard times where I wouldn't have been able to keep going so I'm very very grateful and appreciative for all that is that your first high school band uh is that that album still available anywhere like is that on YouTube It, it is it's not on YouTube um but it is available you can still get hard copies from me believe it or not <laughs> Do you, can you listen to it and not cringe like is it like No it's terrible <laughs> Yeah I, I no no band Except maybe like Radiohead, their first yeah. band is good because isn't their story like they're the first, the only band they've all ever been in or some shit? Right. They're, they're Radiohead. That right. doesn't make sense. But yeah, right. any good band you listen to, um, you talked about their first band, so like, oh god, thank god that it's all all the people like Ari, um, I'm like my third, I'm 31, so everyone like my age and up is like, thank god I wasn't in a band earlier or my fucking first band's YouTube performance at my middle school or my first band's middle school performance would be on YouTube. Well, you know what, though? I mean, the thing is, is that I I will say in our defense, we, honest to God, learned our instruments for the sake of being in the band. So I'm not going to comment on our expert musicianship because we were amateurs. Um, But we did what we needed to do and we did it well and we had a great fan base. So people did like us. But yes, when I listen to it, it, it's painful. (laughs) And I think that the reason it's so painful um, for me is that it's so evident listening back that I had no idea how to sing rock and roll. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the voice is an instrument, and then you got to learn how to use it. That's exactly it. And so, I mean, honestly, when I say that I really wanted to pursue Broadway, I, I'm not embellishing. Like, that was kind of my life goal. And so I go from singing things like Phantom and, you know, uh, admiring people like Lorena McKenna and Sarah Brightman and singing, you know, with a very, very proper diction and, and classical dynamics and, you know, reading the sheet music exactly as is to trying to imitate the nasally attitude of a rock vocalist. And I had no idea what I was doing. And so it, it, at times, like, it's, it's clearly put on too much. So with all that said, with all that said, I will say that in the antihero days, when I was a later teenager and into my early 20s, I definitely started to find myself more. But honest to God, I would say that my new album, which is coming out this year, it's kind of me coming full circle and finally figuring it all out. So, yeah, it took a while. But you know what? It was a damn good journey, and I'm proud that I did it. I I didn't find this out till much older that to find out all my favorite, like, bands from all different genres secretly like grew up loving theater and musicals and never knew like that was like their um i was i talked to um nate from uh he was a singer of boy sets fire and, oh, wow. and we were just talking and he i don't know i was listening to i saw his new band play and i was like man there's a lot of like fear theoretic um theater influences and he's like mm-hmm. oh yeah jesus christ superstar i grew up fucking loving musicals and it's like you wouldn't tell from boy sets fire but all that in my head is just like a musical i was like oh Ah, that's what it's, 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 yeah. I mean, and that, as I've gotten older too, like I've learned my appreciation of musicals. I'm like, oh my God, these are great. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it goes without saying that being a performing musician, you have to draw from a variety of places. So obviously like your songwriting, your, it comes from personal experiences or social issues or whatever inspires you on kind of, you know, a really, really personal level. But in terms of the performance, that is drawing upon so many different elements. Like it's going to draw on life experience. It's also going to draw on, you know, seeing other things and, 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 you know, seeing other versions of art and different forms of artistic expression. And you like to try and take a little bit of all of that. And especially as a lead singer, I mean, 
part of my job, honest to God, is to be like a quasi stand-up comedian at times because, you know, in changeovers during a set, you have to be able to come up with funny things to say on the spot too. And so you have to draw from a tremendous array of influences in order to be a live performing artist. And it's amazing where some of that inspiration comes from. You might not see it, but it's definitely all a part of being a musician. No, that, that, I do. I agree with that too. Like that uh, influence. I don't like growing up, like really being into like the punk rock scene. It was, I, I remember thinking at the time it was such an open minded place, but like I kind of look back and like we kind of, I feel like I closed myself off and I only listened to like one genre for a, a number of years and like that wasn't the, that's not the right thing to do. Like a true music fan should be able to listen to like, uh, no effects and then watch Jesus Christ Superstar and then listen to Beethoven and then process it and make their own original art. And I absolutely agree with three exceptions. <laughs> no rap, no country, and no techno. <laughs> yeah, certain things, I don't know why, but they just don't mix in rap and country. I, yeah, not, just no. Were you a rap, were you, um, was new metal ever big in Canada? Um, it was, like, are you talking about things like Linkin Park? Yeah, there was, like, an era where, like, new metal, when I was in, like, high school, there was this moment where, like, Limp Bizkit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, were, like, they, were, they were huge over everything. here. Everything. Yeah, then, like, the Nookie. <laughs> yeah, and, like, now, like, I kind of look back and be like, yeah, you know. It led me to some cool things, but uh, it's not, I don't go back to the Limp Bizkit records. Well, it was, it's interesting. I mean, like, because I was classically trained, a lot of the stuff that I listened to growing up before I got involved in rock at all was, you know, Broadway show tunes or like Disney, Disney, um, soundtracks yeah. because a lot of that stuff is classically written as well. And so that's what I do is, is vocal exercises. And I really didn't kind of find a, a true rock sensibility um, until I went to college. Like, I mean, part of it was being in the band and listening to what other people were listening to and obviously, you know, what my parents were listening to, but I uh, listening to as well. But I would say that, you know, I didn't really learn about the greatness of like the Beatles or, or Queen or the Sex Pistols or any of these groups groups until i was fairly old like in college already it's because it was never part of you know my mm -hmm. upbringing so i wasn't exposed to it do you think that helps you too because then you you couldn't rip it off because by the time you hear it you're just like your mind like i heard the beatles from such a young age it's just a part of my dna where it's like yeah but like to hear it at 20 for the first time must be like and have an appreciation such as someone like you who actually studied music or like mm -hmm. you hearing the Beatles and like actually getting it for the first time must have been like, oh, my God, this is brilliant. It, it was. It was a completely different experience because it wasn't like it was something that was sort of a given, right, that everybody's heard of this, you know, from an early stage. You know, it, it happened for me much later in life when I could approach it from a, a different sense of maturity and a different perspective. And so the thing is, I think that, you know, it goes without saying when when you're young and you're kind of trying to figure out what does it for you musically, a lot of the time it just has to do with the catchiness, right, or the melody as opposed to listening to the lyrics and listening to the dynamic and the song structure and processing it as an entire collective piece and a collective experience. And then, of course, it's not just about the song, but it's about the album and the journey that it takes you on. And I know I sound like so old school right now, but... I like having that full listening experience and following along and, and, you know, hearing how that artist's life has been like my own. Or do you own a vinyl player, like a record player, and do you do vinyl? I do own a record player, but I don't actually own any vinyl, so yeah. it's very pretty to look at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. But yeah. Um, can we talk the anti-hero days? Because that sure. th that's your major label band, right? Is that it was, yes. We, what we label were, were you on? Uh, Universal. Damn. So what is that? I'm fascinated by that world. Um, from all of the good stories, all the bad stories, like what, what, how, how did you guys get courted? Like I want to hear everything. Um, so we had been touring pretty heavily. Uh, we released our uh, first record in, well, not record, but album, so to speak, <laughs> uh, in 2005. And we released it on my own uh, record label, Her Records. And we were touring heavily. And at that time, like, you have to understand that this is 2005. So that's like 11 years ago. Mm -hmm. This is in the era pre-social media. Like, MySpace was still a big deal back then. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm involved in the music scene at that, at that age. Yeah, yeah 05, I was, that was my, my 
era of like the cusp of MySpace and then the implosion of MySpace where it exactly. was like everything. And everyone's like, just make a MySpace and your band's gonna blow up. Not true. But well, a couple definitely did. It was it was completely different though than the era of Facebook and Twitter it's and YouTube. So crazy. It's almost gonna I feel like it's gonna be a forgotten era because it's so it was such a blip. And if you didn't live through it, it's hard to explain a social media that doesn't really exist anymore. No, it, it totally is. And I can give you a huge example as to why that is the case. So these days, unless you have an impressive following already established on social media, it's really, really hard to get decent shows. Like it goes without saying, which in my humble opinion, and you can argue with me as much as you want on this, I think is total bullshit. Oh, I 100% agree get- with you. Yeah, the you reason- You buy followers. It doesn't mean anything. Exactly! Thank you! It I can't block you for saying that right now. Listen, I can speak from experience. I've had guests on here who have like 30, 40,000 followers. Nothing fucking happens. And then you have someone who has 200 followers and like tons of downloads. Like those numbers are so artificial. I, yes. I don't know what they mean. I, I don't get it. But it's all about a popularity contest. I feel yeah. like I'm back in high school and it's all about looking impressive without having any substance, which if you want to get into a philosophical discussion kind of reflects what's happening in the music industry overall. So perhaps it makes sense. Oh, it but, makes I mean, total sense. I come from an era wherein it wasn't about that. So I'm very old school with my tactics. It was actually about having a good story having what you had to promote yourself and working your freaking ass off. And so in the anti-hero days, no word of a lie, I got us on to Warp Tour two years in a row. All we had was a live demo and a well-written bio. We didn't have any followers on Facebook or YouTube or anything like that because those things didn't even exist. Our album wasn't even freaking finished. All it was was a matter of me persisting and really, really working hard for us and doing the management. That's what it came down to. What years are you on Warped? 2005, 2006. Oh, I would have – you did the whole tour or just part of it? We did the Canadian dates. And so the the first year we were on the Shira Girl stage, which featured specifically female-fronted bands. And then the next year we were on the MySpace stage. (laughs) What bands were you playing when those stages back then? What's 05? God, I I probably would have to actually like. Go I'm sure there's a few of those bands that are famous today, and then some. Well, I mean, it's Warped Tour, so probably like. I know Joan Jett played one of the years. That okay, we that was the all right. Joan Jett. Talent was there too, because okay. I was I was talking to both of them backstage, um, so I can at least tell you that much. Uh, in terms of, I'm pretty sure No Effects was there. Maybe the first year. Yeah, it was like bad. Maybe Bad Religion. Yeah. Because Warp Tour has Sounds like the same familiar. four bands every other year. So like there's always one ska band. It's either Streetlight Manifesto, Less Than Jake, or uh, the other uh, Real Big Fish. They kind of rotate around. Mm-hmm. So probably one of those three. <laughs> so Yeah, probably. I like how we can just guess the Warp Tour lineup. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe a day to remember. That was a thing that people liked that I didn't. Uh, Flog and Molly, maybe? Uh, well, um, hold on. Who was it? See, I'm getting confused because I've attended Warp Tour in other years as just yeah. a guest, and then I've performed it for two years, too. Well, the Canadian I, dates sometimes would be different because some of the American bands wouldn't be able to get into the country for a very Well, no, that's exa- it happens all the time. They try to yeah. come over with drugs, and I'm sorry, not a smart idea. So uh, did you? who were you uh, barking at to get on Warp? Is that like Kevin Lyman directly or like one of his people? Um, so... Him, as well as people who coordinated the stages directly. And Smart. as I said, it was just a matter of persistence and a matter of trying to market ourselves effectively and express why we would be an asset to the festival. That's all it came down to. We had really no bragging rights underneath our belt. Our album wasn't even finished, and we managed to pull it off, which I think is awesome. That's but real awesome. Today's day and age, that would never freaking happen. And so the issue that I have with social media is the fact is that I said it's all superficial and no substance. You can have 500,000 followers and completely have no musical talent whatsoever, and you're just a studio band that heavily relies on things like auto-tune. And to me, I'm sorry. If you're a musician, be legitimate. I mean, you know, even though I'm sure you've seen this too, you could also have a number one song on the radio and yep. then come out to your show. I've been to the concerts where, like, the band is on the radio and they have all major label everything and they're just a shitty band and you get to that concert and they're just like, I remember like, I don't remember the name of the band, but I remember going to this venue 
and no, I mean, literally, there was no one there, and the band was performing to no one, and they were like a radio band. Like they had See, a blip. And that's because you can pay for all of that shit. That's yep. why I'm saying like there's no. It's all smoke and mirrors tactics, and yeah. so I'm very grassroots and old school. The best place to actually win over people is freaking in person, okay? You go out and you try and play good shows and you try to actually make a real connection with people and let them experience your music in all of its capacities, lyrically, melodically, like have them just connect with you and have a sincere connection. Make time for your fans. Talk to them. Engage with them. Like, you know, even though I'm very anti-social media, as you've probably gathered, if somebody takes the time to message me personally on Twitter or Facebook... I will always respond. It might not be immediately because, you know, I'm kind of busy, (laughs) but I will absolutely always respond because they took the time to actually have a sincere engagement with me as opposed to, you know, just superficially graze over something. And so to me, I like to kind of go back old school and have that direct connection with people. And, And that to me is far more impressive being able to win over people in real life as opposed to have a social media following. I could say as a fan, I am 10 times more likely to buy a t-shirt from a band if their member is selling it and I want to talk to them. Absolutely. <laughs> or a CD. And then if I can, I, I'm such a sucker. If I can feel like we have like a, a nice moment with a band, I love them forever. I just, I know, but that's what people t-shirts want. from bands. Yeah. Yeah. That's what people want. They want to feel like it's not just about the music and them being an audience member. They, they want a performance that impacts their life. They want to be able to go back and listen to that record and be like, I can remember exactly where I was standing in that venue when this song was playing, and it reminds me of this memory, and it's an experience. That's why, you know, it's kind of like the movie soundtrack thing. When that song that is perfectly selected for that romantic scene in a movie, that song sticks with you because it reminds you of that beautiful scene, and it becomes a memory and embedded in you a whole experience and i really think that if the music industry was more focused on performances being legitimate fuck autotune fuck all the musicians who can't actually play and just claim to be musicians we need to get rid of that and bring it back to what it's supposed to be about it's supposed to be an art form sorry i was getting a little vicious i love it i love it no this is beautiful this is everything i love so, um, well, it's actually, I was thinking of the irony. It's like you actually have quite the social media following, but I'm glad you don't still buy into it. No, but like, I mean, I had to work my freaking ass off. Yeah, yeah, if you're actually responding. But That's I want to hear more about the, uh, the Universal days. Like, so you got, I love hearing major label. Right. Okay. I, I know that's a very niche tangent. thing to love, but <laughs> yeah, I got tanned. I went on a tangent there. And that's got my entire <laughs> life. That makes you feel better. <laughs> okay. So, um, basically, what was going on is that we self-released this album in 2005. We're uh, able to get on like some impressive bills, and so uh, we played a big music industry conference that is held here in Canada called North by Northeast. There is a South by Southwest in the states in Texas, which is the sister version of it. No and- way. I thought that was the first one no no so, they are related huh. so north that austin <laughs> yeah it's in austin and north by northeast is in toronto so north by northeast um at least it used to be they've changed it for this year from my understanding and i can't really comment on how they've changed it but back in the day when i played it it was all about showcasing up-and-coming bands that were buzzworthy so that you could play in front of people who were, you know, trained publicists and bookers and record labels looking for the next new talent. So that's what happened. We showcased at North by Northeast and a record label rep came a knocking and said that they'd give us a distribution deal, but they wanted to re-release our whole album and solicit it for radio play and all these things. So we continued to tour on it. And now this is 2007. We're still playing the same material, touring around, playing in the States again. And I mean, it was cool to have the universal name behind us. It definitely helped with getting into some bigger events and whatnot. But truth be told, uh, in my experience, I was still working my ass off doing the majority of the bookings and the publicity. And it really didn't help all that much because at the end of the day, what ended up happening is that Universal's really, their their main claim to fame with the deal that we had from them was that they could get us into retail stores and they could try and help with digital sales. Well, this is during the era where fewer and fewer and fewer independent artists were getting shelf space allotted to them at all. Nowadays, they probably have absolutely none. And so 
the the need for a record label was becoming increasingly irrelevant as we got signed. And so they tried to renew with us because we were their top selling artist. We refused because they still owed us money that we never actually saw. So it wasn't a good relationship, suffice it to say. I'm sad that happened to you, but that's kind of the story I was expecting to hear. Yep. Well, you know what? It's the typical story, but I will at least give myself this. I never freaking signed over my publishing rights for anything. Oh, you genius. Still ours. So, well, still mine. Everything's under my name, so they couldn't claim any royalties. So thank God for that. You had at least the know-with-all to sign a good contract. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, honest to God, like at the end of the day, what I ended up finding is that I was getting better publicity than our publicist was, and I was getting better shows than our booker was. And I'm thinking, so what exactly is the advantage here? You're getting a huge cut of our money from our merch sales that we put, we bought, you know, everything for, and we put our own money into. So I don't understand, like, I know that your name is worth something, but it, it's it, to me in the equation, it really didn't make a lot of sense. And that's why we didn't renew. And I have continued to go independent. And unless I got a hell of a contract where I'm like opening for Aerosmith, uh, yeah. I really can't see myself signing with another label again because it was a very negative and heartbreaking experience. And I think it was actually one of the major reasons that Antihero broke up. Because Universal wanted us to continue pushing the Unpretty album, which at this point was like two, three years old. We wanted to be back in the studio recording new material. We had a whole album. Well, I had a whole whole album written. We were ready to go. We wanted to refresh the band. And we were just stuck in this Unpretty era. And we wanted to move forward. And they really weren't, um, they weren't open to that, which was frustrating. No, did like, were they the spot when they signed you? I'm sure the spotlight was all on you. And did you feel like they just kind of like the second you didn't do the unrealistic goal they wanted, they just kind of like, eh? Well, I felt like, you know, they, they signed us to give us their name and then didn't really do much of anything. I yeah. felt like not really much changed and it was still my job to do everything. And I'm thinking, as I said, what is the main advantage? Because retail sto- uh, store sales are increasingly irrelevant. And what ended up happening, too, is we had sold something like 10,000 of our CDs on our own. Mm-hmm. And when Universal signed us, they wouldn't count any of that in their sound scan um, oh, man. recording. And so as a consequence, we weren't eligible, you know, for like gold status or anything, which was total bullshit because we worked our tails off. And if you get cold, is there like a bonus when that you hit these levels? Like there must be some financial. It's a major freaking honor. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. It's a huge, huge deal. And for all of our offstage sales that we did independent of them before they came on board for, you know, the, the first two years, have none of it count? Like that that's really. Like, that's like a racing history. Exactly. Oh. Because had we not done that, had we not had these impressive accolades, they wouldn't have came after us in the first place. But Mm -hmm. then it was kind of illegitimized because they wouldn't count it. And I'm like, this just does not compute right now. Man, yeah, I just, I listen to tons of music podcasts and it's just funny, everyone. And I, it's very rare anyone has a good story about it. It's, and it sucks too. Like, well, I'm sure that there are independent bands out there who have, I think how it works, you know, anymore is that all these indie labels are subsidiaries of the majors and you'll have more of a family taking care of you as opposed to, you know, some big monolithic entity that really just sees you as another band and doesn't give a shit. And that's really what kind of happened with us. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good analogy, actually. <laughs> like you didn't get a team of people or any of that stuff? Not really, no. Wow, they just really... I, I feel bad for, I, but you're right, like, I, at that age, what's the point? Cause, I mean, we're well past Napster, this era that you're talking about. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. It's just so funny how archaic they were acting, in a sense, of well, like, the, as an industry. Really. The music industry is still archaic. I uh, mean, yeah. in the 90s, we could have solved the Napster dilemma before all these other sister, you know, uh, imitation companies started popping up, but no! The music industry is like, I am a giant. I will not be crushed. Yeah. Did you see that documentary downloaded about Napster? No, I have not seen that. Fantastic documentary. Actually, it's by the gentleman who plays, I don't know, one of the characters, 
The guy who's not Keanu Reeves in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, okay. He's a really great <laughs> filmmaker, and it's all about Napster. And at one point, um, I think Napster like offered to like sell, so like tried to team up with the record labels. They did. And then they turned around and said, "No, we're gonna sue all of the fans." <laughs> I know. Like it was so stupid. They they honestly had they just. Worked with in conjunction with the labels, and the labels legitimately licensed all the music to be sold exclusively through Napster as the online medium or something along those lines. Oh we God. could have solved the problem from the get-go. It would have been iTunes 20, 10 years exactly. beforehand. Exactly. And then they gave all of the money to Apple. Yep. And, and artists, <laughs> artists get paid jack shit and off that- of online sales like it's basically not even worth your time it's the same it's the same problem it's like spotify point oh 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 one cent well (laughs) i mean honestly you're you're lucky if you even make that much especially as an independent because you you're paying for the distributor to get you on these different outlets and then those outlets themselves are taking a cut and so if you're only charging like 99 cents a song yeah like i mean what you actually gross from that is ridiculous and so that's why as i said i focus on playing live selective gigs that you know seem like they're going to be good for exposure and trying to sell CDs to people after making a legitimate connection with them because it's far more valuable to them as an experience and it's far more worth my time for them to actually buy a whole cd and there's no middleman oh yeah and when you come back to that town you got a fan base exactly it's about as i said going back to the heart of what this industry was supposed to be about musicianship (laughs) what a concept (laughs) well i mean so you're in a you a you have a great business mindset and you're musically talented but you also got to be a part of the music industry before. I don't know if there's a term for the age. I guess we call it before Napster, after Napster. Yeah. <laughs> you've, uh, you've always been able to keep at a level and survive, which I think there's a lot of lessons out there for people who want to start now. Like, listen to what Rose is saying, people. Well, I mean, I, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I certainly... Like, I grew up at an interesting time with the music industry, and, you know, I got into it fairly young. Like, 15 is fairly young to start your own label and try to understand the marketing. And yeah, I'd how, say so. I think that's... How the, how the I think 25 is even young for that. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a complicated business. And, you know, as I said, I learned really, really quickly that the two key things to success above anything else are marketing and branding. Marketing and branding. That's everything. So you need a good story. You need how to, you need to know how to promote yourself. You can't just rely on, you know, getting a Twitter following because you could have 20,000 people and not play to anybody because those people are not making real connections with you. You need to know how to actually properly promote yourself and above everything. Focus on actually being a good musician, giving people a performance that's worth paying for. What you're saying to write a good song? Nah. That sounds like hard work. I mean, like I said, I I really would like to see the the era of the superficiality that we're living in right now, the smoke and mirrors to come to a close and, and for us to get back to the heart of what everything's supposed to be about. So how it's changed, you know, in, in the digital era or the, the post Napster era, whatever you want to call it, is that so much of the focus is just online and it's about creating an appearance. And, you know, that's all well and good, but ultimately as an independent artist, you don't make very much money from online sales. If you actually want to have a viable business model, you need to have a decent stage performance. You need to be able to sell hard copy merch. Honest to God, that's the truth. And uh, so what um, What was the transition from anti-hero to the solo or is it? Are you considered a solo artist? Or I know you're I, a band. I, I am a solo artist with a awesome backing band. So I would never want to take away their props because they are wonderful guys, and I am honestly so honored to have them joining with me. Um, the reason that it's a solo artist with a backing band is because I did things kind of in reverse in that. I was in the studio recording Onto the Floor. That's my new album that's coming out. And originally, I was going to have it be another weird kind of experimental acoustic record. And then my favorite band of all time from the 90s, after like 20 years of not speaking to each other, reunited. I got to see them in person. And I got to meet them. Veruca Salt. You know, as you started talking, I'm like, I bet it's Veruca Salt. Fucking right it is. Canada. (laughs) It's got to be. It's got to be. Yep. So 
I got to see them and I got to meet them and I actually gave them my discography, which oh, like that's a, so cool, a huge deal for me. And that happened last summer. And at that point, my album kind of radically changed direction. I'm like, I need distortion. <laughs> And I might need to, you know, heavy it up a little bit. And then it kind of went in a direction of epic proportions that I realized very quickly there's no way I'm going to be able to pull this off with just an acoustic guitar and do these songs justice because they develop so much dynamic and, and interest and layers that I didn't want to deprive people of that. I wanted them to have a fuller experience. And so... I talked with my mastering engineer, who's a very, very well-respected gentleman. Uh, his name's Roger Lian. He, uh, he's based out of New York, and he's done some really incredible work for a lot of very impressive people. And so I take his opinion very, very seriously. And I was explaining the dilemma that when Antihero broke up, it really devastated me um, on both a personal and professional level, because let's just suffice it to say, it was really messy and it did not end well. It's like a marriage uh, ending. Like there's no real amicable way to do it. It, it can't. No. It's, rare. it's rare. And on top of that, the lead guitarist and I were engaged for seven years. So okay, so that's a way different story. But I'm sure you've told that more than once somewhere else. Yeah, it was a marriage kind of ending too. Oh wow! Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, so I'm sure you can appreciate. I was very devastated. <laughs> I just imagine good art came out of this. It did. So um, there's a silver lining for, the, for your fans. For sure. But my head was a complete mess. And, yeah. and so I, you have to understand that I was very, very, very hesitant to ever want to go down the band route again because it ended so badly. And I, yeah. I was so emotionally torn up from that experience. So I'm talking with Roger and I'm explaining that so with this new album I've written, it was supposed to be acoustic. It's not anymore. I want to be able to pull this off live. Do you think I should get backing tracks? I know that rock musicians don't usually do that. Is that going to be weird? He's like, you need a band, Rose. I'm like, I really don't want to form another band. I'm just terrified. It's going to end badly. He's like, Rose, you need a band. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, how can I possibly get out of this? And he's just, we're going back and forth, going back and forth. It's like, just get a three-piece. Make it really simple. Little drama. Probably have guys in it so, you know, there's no cattiness or whatever. And I don't know. Like, clearly the universe was aligning for me because shortly after that conversation, I posted um, ads in some local music groups on Facebook and Kijiji. I had a drummer contact me and a bassist, bassist contact me within a week of each other, set up the audition for both of them on the same day, and that's my band. Damn, just like that. Just like that. I didn't have to audition anybody else. They are not only fucking ridiculously talented, they are amazing guys to work with. No egos, no bullshit, no attitudes. They, they love my music, they love my vision, and on top of that, they've contributed really, really cool, interesting ways of taking, you know, the complexity of my recorded versions of the songs, stripping them down and making them raw and rock and roll for live performance, and we're really excited. Our first performance is actually this Sunday. <laughs> oh, congratulations. That's yeah, awesome. <laughs> and so, and I'm, so you guys all get along, and it's just like, all right, this is it. Pretty much. It's it's really, really cool. And I can honestly say, like, in my past band experiences, I mean, my first band, we were all in high school. So I'm going to chalk a lot, up, a lot of what happened in that band up to simple immaturity. Yeah. Um, the second one, though, there was a lot of melodrama. There was a lot of unfortunate drug use um, uh, on behalf of the other members. And obviously, me being straight edge, that created some problems. Oh, are you still edge? I am. I've been straight edge since I was 18 years no old. No way. I think I should have a tally. So you're probably our Jeff, Andy, you, maybe Ray. So maybe you're a fourth uh, straight edge person on here. Awesome. I don't know why. That, that's a fun tally I like to keep for no reason at all. Well, hey, you know what? It's nice to know that there are other yeah. musical people out there that yeah, you know no. believe in actually not living up to the bullshit sex, drugs, and rock and roll mentality. It's, it's so funny you say that because all four of them are musicians at one point of their life. <laughs> it was yeah, every one of them was a musician. Um, maybe I don't know if they still play music to the in bands currently, but that was like how I knew them through music. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> they all for that world, and all they don't know each other. Oh, what a weird, small world! And I'm I'm not straight edge, but I don't do drugs and I don't drink. Well, good. Yeah, I drink very rarely. I almost would say I don't drink, but I, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I'm kind of straight edge without trying. 
That's fair. Like I said, I mean, to each their own, I guess I just, you know, to me, what I, I find to be a consistently sad reality is the fact that, oh, another rock star died of a drug overdose and nobody even blinks an eye like this. Yeah. Is, so it's, it's, it's normalized. And in my mind, it's like, no, 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 this should not be accepted as OK. We should be challenging the fact that this is not OK and actually, you know, wanting to promote a more positive image, perhaps. Now, how is touring in a band while Edge with non-Edge members? I always find that as an interesting dynamic. Uh, not easy. Because I don't drink really ever. I mean, I've drinking alcohol, so but like, I fucking hate drunk people, and I have zero yes. tolerance for it. And yes. I cocaine. I hate being around people on cocaine. It's like I want to punch them. Um, yeah. Yeah, when you're not on the drugs and the alcohol, God, it's fucking annoying as shit. Oh yeah, and so what and often close quarters? Ugh. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so what often happened with Antihero and why there were lots of conflicts and drama, unfortunately, is that, you know, the rest of my bandmates would, you know, we'd, we'd finish a set. They'd go off on their merry way and do whatever. And I'm left there manning the merch table and trying to watch her by myself working. And everybody else is, you know, party time. It's like, well, that's all well and good. You know, when does Rose get to have a good time? She just has to work the whole time. And then, of course... If anything went wrong in a gig, I'm the fucking one who gets the blame for it all. So yeah. I'm sure you can appreciate that it, it spiraled really badly and, and the breakup was, was bad. So yeah, it was, it, I was, suffice it to say, I was very hesitant to get into a new band, but I'm so happy to actually say that this time I think it's going to be uh, the proper way that a band should be together, wherein we just get along. There is no bullshit. We're on the same page and. People, uh, like everybody, approaches it from a professional perspective in that we are there to give people performance. We are on the clock as though we're employees right now. So there will be absolutely no partaking in ridiculousness. If you want to do that outside of, you know, work hours when you're not on stage and at a show, none of my business, but not when you're part of my band. You know, uh, funny I, story, I used to work at a Starbucks in a, a hotel where I live in Providence. It's like a pretty fancy hotel, and Snoop Dogg at the time, Snoop Lion, was hmm. uh, playing the venue up the street. He's still Snoop Dogg. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was that, that week he changed his name. Yeah. Uh, so I do this great venue called Lupo's, and I knew a lot of the people who worked there. And uh, so I was talking to Snoop Dogg's tour manager because I was, I was making Snoop Dogg's uh, chai latte. Oh, nice. Story Look chai latte. And um, just I don't know, just bullshit. And then I noticed the dude actually had a strike anywhere tattoo so he's a punk rock dude but obviously wanted to work in the music industry and it's like well you gotta take it anyway i'm just talking to the guy about what it was like working for snoop and he's like honestly snoop dogg's like your father and he's really nice and really polite and then later that uh next day i was talking to one of my bouncer about the guy one of the bouncers at the hotel uh the, the venue yeah he's like yo i gotta tell you something so weird i just worked a show for snoop dogg last night yeah he was an hour late and there's a ton of weed but they cleaned up the green room and left a thank you note. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, I've had local bands trash that room that we never see again. But Snoop Dogg left me a thank you note. <laughs> well, hey, you and know actually, what? At least he hasn't let it go to his head then. You know, but the guy, I'm like, yeah, I guess you don't get to that level. I mean, maybe you should. There are people, but like to be to that level, you kind of can't really be a dick. It's a small, incestuous industry. And unless you're like the stones, go fuck yourself. Don't be a dick. Well, I mean, I, I would, I would hope that nobody. I wish really, that was working. <laughs> I would, I would hope that nobody really aspires to be a dick, but. Oh, they're so funny. Just me. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people out there who definitely are. <laughs> for sure, for sure. They're just weird because it's Snoop Dogg. I didn't have that view of Snoop Dogg cleaning a green room and saying thank you for having me at your venue. Or it was like the venue was lucky to have him, not the other way around. Fair enough. Well, he's a much bigger artist than Providence could handle. Props for uh, Snoop Dogg, aka Snoop Lion. <laughs> he's got good manners. His mama raised him well. Right? I know that was the thing I did not expect. Well, it, and I've also worked in that hotel when like Britney Spears is staying there, and oh no, different whatever. Yeah, I mean you don't ever you don't ever see Britney Spears, but you sure hear about her and meet all of her staff and hear all the yeah. I'm stories. sure. Fuck, I'm yeah, sure. That's not my world. I don't like that stuff. Those people. Yeah. So do you guys have like band rules? Obviously, no drinking. Like, do you guys like not drink on stage? That kind of stuff. Absolutely. Like, so, 
especially a huge part of my image has always been that I'm straight edge and I'm also vegan. I've been vegan for the past seven years. And so, Oh, right on. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so a huge part of what is really important to me, uh, in terms of promoting myself is promoting, you know, healthful living and a positive mentality and trying to be, you know, a role model. So obviously it would be really contradictory and kind of in poor taste if my band members are over there getting trashed out of their minds because they're associated with me. And so, yeah, absolutely. All, yeah. All those ground rules were laid down right from the beginning and no problems. So I, I don't foresee there being any problems. As I said, we're, we're all really cool. We get along and it's just, they understand that I take, I do take this very professionally as do they, and my success is their success. And so why would they want to sabotage that? No, absolutely. And, you know, you just kind of wish people would understand that, like, you're getting to play music for a living. You know how many people want to do this? Like, take it a little. Have fun. You should always yeah. have fun with everything you do. But, for sure. You know, un- appreciate the fact that you're getting to do. There are people in that crowd who want to be up there that aren't. So, like, I, you know, I think that's awesome. You guys actually take it serious. And the people who take it serious are the ones that are here for the long haul. Absolutely. And I mean, I wouldn't still be doing this if I didn't absolutely, you know, feel it in my bones and feel it in my heart and my soul. And I didn't absolutely love being able to connect with people through the power of music. And so, yeah, I do take it very seriously. And as I said, I'm just really, really honored and and blessed to now have people that I work with that are extremely professional and on the same page as me. It's a nice change. (laughs) How long have you been vegan? Uh, I've been vegan now for seven years. That's awesome. Um, That's great. And initially for me, it was actually just due to having digestive difficulties anytime mm-hmm. I was having dairy or meat. And so I, I kind of converted for health reasons. And then I start, start started to learn more about what was going on in the industry. I'm like, okay, well, I'm pretty sold then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the people on here, um, Andy, who was in a band and now is a straight edge guy, uh, he works, I want, I forget, I think he works for Compassion, Co- that's his clothing company. Damn, I wish I could remember the name where he worked, but he like travels around the country and does like vegan outreach on colleges. And it's like, so I remember having him on. The first thing I said, I was like, I'm really afraid I'm going to, con- you're going to convert me to veganism after this. <laughs> I mean, just joking around, but yeah, man, people, I, I feel bad because like, I mean, I'm not vegan, but I'm sure you must get some scoffing reactions when you tell someone and all of a sudden someone wants to control your diet. I'm like, I just don't, I don't care. Just- I think. I think the problem is, is that, okay, in any kind of niche community, which the vegan community still very, very much is, it's very grassroots, Yeah, that um, you have extremists on either end, right? Yep. And I think that when the, the problems start, when people assume that everybody, if you hear my cat meowing in the background, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, my cat's right next to me too. All right. If uh, I think the problems start when people assume that everybody made that choice or that transition in their life for the same reasons. So, you know, I'm not a member of PETA. I don't go around spray painting people who are wearing fur coats. I don't try to tell people that they're murderers if they work on a farm. Um, I've got major objections to that myself because it's all well and good that you want to, you know, look out for compassion for animals, but don't, you know, lose your compassion for humans in the meantime. That's equally not very good. We're kind of all part of the the, the same system here. Um, We all have to live together in harmony. So as I said, I initially converted for health reasons. That's not to say by any means that I agree with what's going on in factory farming, um, and I guess the, the one thing that I will say is I think that people just generally speaking don't think about where their food comes from because it's so normalized. And for, you know, all of my life up until seven years ago, it's like I never made the mental connect in terms of what this animal went through or what the process was or, you know, what's going on behind the scenes because we don't question such things. It's just at the store. We don't have to see the animal when it had a face. We don't have to see it getting slaughtered. We don't have to see any of those things. So there's a mental disconnect. And I think that as a non-vegan, if you open your eyes up to some of the many documentaries out there and actually learn about what's going on in the, the industry, you'd be appalled at a lot of it because it's just it's unnecessary cruelty and unnecessary torture and so if you want to eat meat that's that's fine it's none of my business to each their own you need to do what you want to do but I think that it goes without saying when it comes to everything in life not just veganism at least make yourself aware of what's really going on that's such a great message um 
Yeah, we could uh, probably, it's almost at the hour mark, start to wrap it up. Uh, like, um, So, like, yeah, plug yourself. When's the new album coming out and all that good stuff? And where can people find you online? So the album is probably going to come out this fall. And I say probably because it really depends on what's going on with the rest of the summer in terms of touring. However, if anybody does happen to catch us live and we are going to try and get some U.S. tour dates, so fingers crossed, it would be awesome to come out to Rhode Island. It's beautiful. Yeah, um, love to have you. Um, we will have limited edition hard copies available by donation only, and they're by donation only because all the proceeds go to my non-for-profit foundation called Music Saves, and the aim of that foundation is to impart onto troubled youth the healing capacity of music to overcome things like depression and bullying and teenage angst. And so my goal is I'm hoping to raise enough funds from the sale of my merchandise to be able to conduct a nationwide tour of high schools, talking to people about my terrible, traumatic high school melodramatic existence and the songs that were inspired from it and how I was able to ever overcome all of those things and become a mostly functional adult. <laughs> I think you just hit like all of my juice spots in that one thing. That was everything I love. Sweet. <laughs> Music. Uh, I worked for nonprofits for years. I, I work for a behavior health company now. I've worked and yeah, that's everything I love. That, that's well, I'm sending cool. you an air high five right yeah, now. Right back at you. That's, that's amazing that you could. Make your art and do something good for the world simultaneously. That's we need more people like that in the world. And that you know very much wraps up. That was a very very good synopsis as to why I am an artist. Because in my mind, an artist's job is to inspire people, to provoke them to think differently, and to connect with them. And that is what I hope to do. So I hope you connect with me. You can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Rose Cora Perry official or twitter.com slash Rose Cora Perry. Or you can always send me an email and uh, I look forward to hearing from whoever wants to um, get in touch, even if you want to challenge me on some of my opinions, because I know I'm a very opinionated lady. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. And uh, Awesome. Well, have a good rest of your night and uh, I'll, I'll be in touch when it goes up. You too, and I hope I didn't talk your ear off too much, and I really did enjoy the, uh, the, the dialogue that we had, so. Oh, this is perfect. This is like the dream episode. I was like, I just love talking about music industry stuff. I don't know why. I just love that stuff, and I was like, I haven't talked about this in a while, so. Awesome. That was a ton cool. of fun. It was, it was a perfect episode, exactly how it should be. Well, I'm sending you another high five. I'm glad that you had a good time as well, and I hope you have a lovely rest of your evening you as too. well. Right, take All care. right. Bye.
In the future, humans create AI. Three days later, they have sex with it. Gigahose is a robot sex comedy with what's been called a South Park level of shock value. Creators Adam Lash and Kevin Gilligan take their concept in smart, surprising directions. It's been described as pure genius with a real clerks-like charm. Catch season one now at youtube.com slash gigahose.